This is Retrospective Facilitation, a podcast for facilitators that want to make their retrospectives even more effective. Listen to industry experts, authors, and executives that advocate powerful retros, share their stories and insights on how to reflect, adjust, and become more effective. In this episode, I talk with Paul Booz. Paul is an Agile coach. He started the Agile Coach Camp Initiative and we met at the Retrospective Facilitator Gathering last year. I've asked him what his focus is in retrospectives given the recent shift to online, plus lessons learned during his experience facilitating retrospectives. Enjoy the show. Today on the show we have Paul. Uh, Paul, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us about uh, the work you're currently doing and what makes you passionate about it? Sure. So uh, I'm, I'm Paul Booth. I'm a uh, coach here out of the uh, D.C. area. Um, I support teams and execs uh, for the most part in, you know, locally here. I don't do too much uh, from a remote standpoint, um, although interestingly enough, with uh, thanks to COVID-19, we've all gone remote. So it probably wouldn't matter where, where I'm actually doing other than time zones. It would make it difficult to uh, so working with a team right now um, that happens to be a team within my company that's doing software development. And, you know, I act as sort of like their team facilitator currently and help them um, try to improve themselves as they uh, go forward and deliver software. Um, one of the things that I'm really happy to be talking on this show is uh, I'm really passionate about retrospectives. I, I've always felt like uh, if I were only going to introduce one practice into any um, any form of methodology or anything like that. So if you were following the typical phase gate approach that had been espoused a long time ago, um, if you just introduce retrospectives, I think you'd probably wind up with something that looks fairly agile because you would continuously be improving. So um, that's one of the reasons I'm really happy to be here. So. And what makes you um, passionate about like um, running retrospectives and um, how did you get interested in uh, facilitation and retrospective facilitation? Yeah, so I got interested into it um, well, pretty much when I started doing agile approaches. And as I started learning more about them and, you know, seeing, trying to reflect more, you know, what Alistair Coburn would call a reflection meeting. Um, and then you read in Scrum that it's a, an event in, in Scrum. I think at the time they ca- called it ceremonies and they've gone through many uh, different iterations of the Scrum Guide and changed the terminology. Um, and I picked up the Agile Retrospectus book because you know I had not really run across anything that described how to get good results out of a retrospective. Um, the training that you know, I went to when I was getting my CSM way back when, um, only did, you know, what went well, what didn't go well. And that just didn't really sit very well for coming out with, well, how do we get improvement out of that? Um, and so I picked up the Agile Retrospectives book, uh, and I started using the structure there. Um, and I'm a big believer in that structure. Even, even if you're going to try to keep the retrospective short, you've kind of got to go through all those phases to, to be successful, I think. Um, and you have to design your retrospectives to, to do that. And then I, like, shortly after I got the book, I went, Esther actually re- 
had worked with Don Gray and actually offered an Agile Retrospectives course. So I and a colleague hopped in the car, drove down to Raleigh, and you know went to the course. And it wasn't too much money or anything, and it, you know uh, and it worked out really well. We learned quite a bit, and uh, you know we were both able to start bringing that in on board to at the Department of Agriculture was where I was working at the time. What would you say is um, an effective retrospective? So I look at one is that you at least have one or two actions or experiments um, that are coming out of that particular session. So, and I, I like to use the word session. I don't really want to just call it a meeting because to me it's a little bit more than a meeting, more like a working session. So if you don't have any actions to, to, tr to even try, um, then it may be a feel-good session or a or it may allow you to vent, but it's not going to really help you improve. And there are times that maybe you want to, to just vent or you want to just have a feel-good session. I'm going to play devil's advocate and, um, and kind of like say, what if uh, you have like 50 um, actions coming out of a, of a one-hour record? Yeah, well, that's too many to do. I've, I've encountered having a lot of ideas created. However, part of the thing should filter down to the one or two that we're going to take action on. And there's you know lots of different techniques to do that with. Um, and that's a, the job of the, the facilitator. If they see way too many ideas showing up of actions, more than you could possibly do, it's the job of the facilitator to try to get those whittled down um, in a manner that the group you're working with um, agrees with, right? So you want them to buy into it. It's They're the ones making the decision but you're designing the decision-making process as the facilitator to help them get there. So I, I just really, that's, yeah, I think, I mean, you know, one of the things is taking a look at the size of the actions that are coming up as well. I mean, have I ever lit one that's gone like with five actions? Sure. They were all little tiny actions. So, you know, if each one of those is really super small, then it really doesn't matter how, as much about trying to control the quantity. But if one is, you know, kind of large, like we want to, like if the improvement is we want to start doing TDD, this iteration, that might be the only one I want to have going into it just because that, I know that's an, they're going to have a learning curve. They need time and space to, to, to kind of learn that technique and build it up amongst, and everybody's going to have a different learning amount if that's, you know, if there's, four developers all trying to, you know, and none of them done it before, that's going to, that's going to be even more of a learning curve behind it. So, you know, it might even take more than one iteration to do that. And so, you know, you might want to not have any more than that as the one action, if that's what they're the most passionate about. Great. Um, what is something that you learned as a facilitator in a retrospective that you've run? Something that I've learned, like, let me, let me, is it, was, would it be about the team or learned about uh, facilitation itself? I want to say about facilitation itself. Okay. So um, I would say it would be that you have to pay attention to, I've become much more observant, I guess would be one of the things. Um, and it's, I find that, of course, much easier when I'm not the facilitator. Uh, but it does, you know, when I'm not the facilitator and perhaps I'm just either an observer or a participant, and being able to observe what's going on makes me much more conscious about things that I might do as a facilitator that could be either positive or negative 
in how a team or or even just one person might perceive it. So paying attention to body language and how I might do things or facial expressions or tone of voice, all of those types of things that I probably wasn't very conscious of, you know, early on. Um, now I've tried to be a lot more conscious of it and, and pay attention. Um, and I would say one other thing is probably checking for understanding even for myself, you know, trying to make sure I'm not assuming I understand what somebody may have said. So can you give us like um, a practical um, tip? How would you, um, how would you do that in a, in a meeting? How would you phrase that? How would, how I'd phrase how to, um, yeah, to involve the audience. Yeah. I guess I was thinking like someone that might be listening to this and wants to actually do that. How, how do I do it? So that it's not hurtful to the person or it doesn't sound like uh, I'm controlling. Yeah. I, I, I'd like to try not to do very much drawing or, or writing or any of that kind of stuff myself. Um, I try to, I try to always include exercises that have, uh, you know, uh, the, you know, the group create something or silently working individual and then sharing um, to so, so that I'm not polluting anything with my own interpretations. Awesome. If I am going to do, if I am going to do some kind of recording of my own, of whatever they're saying, because sometimes that, that helps them just freely speak, I will try to make that, you know, not something I'm taking down in front of myself, but something you know, that I'm putting on a board where it's visible to everybody so that whoever's speaking at that time, if I've got something wrong, they can correct me. And then of course I'll ask questions along the way. Is this what, is this what you meant kind of thing? Do I, did I capture your meaning correctly? Is there anything you would change? I think one, one other question that I have for you is like, you, you mentioned that mostly you were doing um, on site face to face. And now obviously we're all in the same situation across the world, with uh, COVID-19 working more remotely. What is the first thing that, that you had to, to acknowledge going online and uh, running remote retrospectives? Uh, so I, I missed you. What technology did I turn to? Oh, no. What is the first uh, thing that you had to shift going online? So for, for me personally, it was uh, I, I feel that I have a lot more checking up for understanding and also just listening Um the particular organization that I'm working with right now, they don't have, you know, we're using web, we're using WebEx, and we we're not allowed to use other technologies other than that for meetings and so forth. So, um, at least at least when we want to all be present at one time, and for whatever reason, their network uh, that they're using that on does not have the enough bandwidth to also do video. So. That means I'm having to listen a lot more intently around voice tones and also ensure that I'm doing things where I'm paying attention if somebody might be being, being stepped on uh, so that I can ensure that they also get their say. Uh, so those, those things are, for me, from a personal standpoint. Um, from a group standpoint that I'm working with, the, the very first thing we did, uh, we were intending on doing this when we were still in person, but knowing that we were probably going to go all remote. Uh, but it ended up we had to do it when we were all remote because our, our company made the decision to, uh, to, to go all remote uh, on the day we were going to do it. So we became, I ran a short workshop, uh, took us a couple hours 
to actually sort of add to our working agreements and so forth um, about how we wanted to interact remotely. Um, so that, that was great. I think adjusting to where the client is, the fact that they have WebEx, the fact that they don't have bandwidth to turn, to turn on the video. Um, oftentimes I hear people like, they must have the video on, they must do this. Well, it's so contextual that um, what, what you said is, uh, is great. And uh, one thing that we kind of like um, started together was that Principle 12 uh, Alliance initiative. And one thing that the, you called out uh, uh, is to, to collect story of how um, to, of overcoming failure. And I'm curious to ask you about a story of, uh, of a retrospective where um, you were able to overcome failure, either of failure of the... Uh, of how the retrospective went or how uh, something in, in that group uh, was going? Yeah, so, you know, one interesting thing that I that I had, I would say was a, a failure. So I was coaching a team at a government agency here, um, Bureau of Census, or the ones that do the decennial census. And there was a team that, you know, went through, um, a retrospective. So I'm fairly early on starting coaching them. So they go through the retrospective, you know, they, and then they came up with no actions. It really just wound up being sort of like a um, bitch fest. And, you know, at the end, I just asked the one singular question, like, well, so what action are we going to be taking out of this retrospective for improvement? Um, because I hadn't, I haven't heard one yet. And they were, you know, getting ready to conclude. And I got pounced on <laughs> that they uh, that they didn't really need to do anything that they were you know working just fine together, and um, that sort of set me back. And so I asked, I just kind of like and this shows that you've got to be very careful. Um, at that point, I was so taken aback that I just sort of said flippantly said, "So we're perfect now. We don't need to improve." And that, because I was just astonished and, you know, I was probably letting my inner monologue come out too much. Um, and that, that actually caused the scrum master to uh, almost have a breakdown in front of me. And the, what, what, what I learned was that there, while I was starting to get a feel for what was going on systemically on that particular program, I didn't have a full understanding of how bad it was. And that actually helped me understand a lot more about systemic, um, you know, what systemic thing can be going on. So, you know, they wound up doing retrospectives because they were told they had to, they, not because they really wanted to. And so they were, you know, they were just going through the motions. And that was partially because the scrum master, um, that was one of her measurements was to follow all the ceremonies, you know, and if they, if for any reason they didn't, you know, they deviated from any particular ceremony and the way it was expected to be done, they got dinged on it. Um, and then, and, and that she had a counter stress on it, on her because every minute that was spent in something not producing code and which was measured by delivering story points, she also got dinged on. So she wanted, she had to do it, but she wanted to keep it as short as possible. 
So uh, it was okay for them not to have an action. So I found, I found that really interesting, and I learned quite a bit more about paying more attention to the systemic stuff before I even invited some questions that may occur. I see. And um, did that, was there, was there ever, ever like a shift in, in some of those patterns for that team? So I, you know, there was a little bit um, and that only started happening because I took a step back and I stopped, I actually stopped working with a lot of the teams directly. I'd maybe go in and observe them, but I just actually stopped actually providing coaching to them. What I started doing was looking at it. So there, all these teams were building a related product um, in, a, I'd say, a scaled environment. Um, they were not particularly using SAFE on this particular program or anything, but they were, you know, multiple teams are delivering on a singular product, each one delivering a major component around it. And I just sort of started looking at, okay, what things can I call from going to retros different retrospectives or in other ceremonies that give me a view into the systemic things and let me present that to both the contractor program management and the government program management and say, here's leverage things, things that we need to leverage on to try to help let the teams become more effective, which would then allow them to do their own self-improvement and would give them incentive. So that's what I started doing. And, it, and that had varying effects depending on um, which team it was and who the scrum master was and whether they reached out or not. So some, some scrum masters more recovered more quickly from that once, you know, once barriers, you know, systemic barriers started going down and other ones took longer. Um, and then I just started responding to scrum masters around, you know, giving them feedback when they asked for it, you know, and I had one or two that were, once they realized I was not trying to be a hostile person in there, they would, they would frequently ask, well, what things can I do to be more effective? Great. Yeah. One, when, when you said, um, that they were working perfectly together, they don't need any actions. One thing I would have asked is how can we continue this or how can we make it even better? What are some ideas? Uh, and, uh, have you, have you tried that? What, what did they come back with? Yeah. So, I mean, that was sort of like, you know, when I asked the question about the, what, you know, what actions were showing up, I did ask a few things about, um, you know, that wasn't the singular question per se, although that was the one that got, that I pounced up. And I, I just asked, well, how do we do improvement, um, along the way if, if we're not coming out with an action of a retrospect? And they really just didn't have much of an answer. It was like, it was almost like a question, you know, we're doing everything that we're supposed to be doing. We're following all this, you know, they were, they were talking about all the events or rituals and, and stuff that they did as, as if that was, you know, as if by doing them, that was the magic that was supposed to happen. So they, they really just didn't understand a lot about the, um, the, the, the values and principles behind the manifesto and why, you know, why there was this thing called a retrospective and, you know, and, and it was really being partly done because of the program management, you know, say instituting compliance 
In, in your words, why is there a retrospective? I, to me, it's, and I think the, the explanation that we sort of came out of the retrospective facilities gathering is, is a perfect way of looking at it. Looking backwards safely, um, looking to see is, is there something, some, something we want to try to improve and make some decisions on that improvement to, for the future. Uh, so that we're either more productive or we're just happier or whatever it happens to be that is the problem we're trying to, to take care of. You know, is there something that's in our control or at least in our influence that we can take in order to, to help make things better? That, that to me is like the, the, the gut about it. Um, you know, and I, I love I love the idea of doing it as a retrospective. I mean, there's lots of other techniques that we can do um, for continuous improvement, but I like retrospectives because it's getting a group of people that are all supposed to be working together on the same page about what they think that improvement should be. Great. So we're almost up with time, so I'm going to start like tailor us into the end of the interview. And the first question, I have some questions that I ask all the guests. Uh, the first one is like, what is a book that you're reading, maybe about facilitation, maybe about something else, something that you want to share with the audience? Yeah, so I actually am in between books. I just finished reading uh, Fixing Your Scrum by, by Ryan Ripley and Todd Miller. Uh, Ryan sent me a copy uh, to... He really he wanted me to do a review uh, on Amazon, so uh, it's a really good book if you are a Scrum master and you know there's some common patterns of problems that tend to show up um, across you know Scrum teams and this you know so it's very Scrum centric. It I, not necessarily there's some general things that I can recommend, but it's very Scrum centric. Um, you know that that's one thing. Uh, so I found that I found that that would be a book I would recommend for anybody that happens to be a scrum master or perhaps a brand new coach having to coach scrum teams. It might give you some ideas. The one other thing I really like about it at the end of each chapter, it has a, like a little piece of coaching advice and, and gives you a sort of an exercise that can help you. Um, if you're a scrum master, solve your own problem. If you don't have a coach that can help cool. you. Does he have a chapter about retrospectives? He does. Uh, I did ding him on his on the review. That was the only one of my one quibbles was that you know he followed sort of the flow of the ceremonies um, or events, and of course that winds up being the at the end. <laughs> I just said, and I think I put on there, and I sent him a note as well on the Slack channel that we share. Said retrospectives at the end, really. <laughs> Um, and so next question I have for you is, uh, what is one activity that has worked well for you, like a retrospective activity, a facilitation activity, and in which context? Um, maybe remote, if you have something that worked well for you remote, since now everyone is kind of like forcibly in a remote kind of scenario, or something that can be transposed remotely. Sure. Um, so actually, the retrospective I ran this week um that went that I thought went pretty well because we came out with some a couple of pretty good solid actions that were very concrete. Uh, started off by asking the folks in order to get good data, I asked them to sort of journal things. So whenever they had an event or surprise that came up, that's what I asked them to journal. And whether that event or surprise made them happy or sad, and if it occurred during a regular ceremony or you know ritual that you know that we that was scheduled just a note if it went went in that um 
And then I asked them to send that to me, you know, at the end of the day before the retro, our retrospective was on Wednesday morning. And <clears throat> I put that into a timeline. So that way, the, you know, uh, the typical timeline exercise was already sort of pre-built. And then I just asked them to verify that and that, you know, that I got it correctly, you know, you know, so that took a took a load out of the work, um, and because I found that remote retrospectives just take more time, and so trying to keep things at a reasonable time frame um, that just made it a little easier, and so that allows us to sort of dive right into looking for patterns that we saw, and so we you know we had one area that we were really unhappy, and then there was a pattern of some stuff going on that was going really well, so I first focused on the unhappy one and sort of figured out an action we'd want to take from that as well as a signal or measure that we would want to do to know that know whether we're being successfully handling it. And then on the, then we, I went back and did the same on the pattern for the one that was going really well. How could we either amplify or replicate this thing that's make that we like going on more often? Um, and then how would, and what's the action we can do to help in this case it was replicate it more often. Um, and what's the, in this case, they went, wound up, it was hard to measure whether it was, whether it was actually occurring, but we could definitely measure or see a signal if something, if it were to, you know, start getting worse. So we just said, okay, here's something we're going to monitor for. And if we see that happening, we know something's going awry. So those were the, the so we had two actions and they each had a signal that went along with them that allowed us to sort of monitor whether, th you know, whether we were either seeing improvement on the thing that wasn't going very well or whether we were seeing, uh, you know, we were getting some, you know, seeing something go awry that was going well. Great. And um, final question. Uh, what is your favorite food? If you have to pick one item. Favorite food. Favorite food. Only one thing. You're on stranded on an island Stuff. or <laughs> wherever you are. And uh, you can Fairly only pick without, one uh, thing. What I'm in the mood for. Hmm. Um, well, all right. So I'll, I'll guess I'll go back to something that I would frequently eat as a, as a child and I still eat to this day and I'm, maybe I'll fix it, uh, uh, tomorrow morning for, for breakfast grits, which is, uh, how many corn that's been ground up and you just put a little bit of water, salt, and I usually like to add pepper and butter onto it. Some people love to put it with shrimp or put cheese in it. I just like mine. I like mine plain with just a bit of salt, pepper, and butter. So, and then I have a bowl of that, like a hot cereal. So, is there anything that we missed? Uh, something you want to share uh, with the audience? Any final word? Final word. <laughs> so, I guess two things. One, um, first of all, if, to anybody that listens to this, stay safe and healthy. Um, pay attention to social distancing. I think that's I think that's really important right now. Uh, here in the U.S., I will say we were very slow at that, and you, we can see the effects of it. Um, uh, you know, every day, um, hearing about people coming down with the disease or dying, and so I hope all your listeners out there will, you know, stay safe and healthy and follow proper guidance. Um, maybe even be a, m a little bit more conservative if you're in an area that lifts that fairly quickly. Um, Maybe you might want to be a little more conservative and go a little slower than that. Uh, and then the other thing is, you know, take stock in your teams and check in on their well-being. Um, what you know, particularly if you're a leader, uh, 
you know, there's nothing more meaningful than a leader being able to show from, you know, being high up. Awesome. Um, Paul, how can our listeners find you? So, uh, you know, a couple easy ways. I mean, they're, they're obviously, I think one way is, uh, you know, catching me on Twitter. I'm Paul underscore Boos on Twitter. And I'm fairly responsive on that if somebody tweets at me. Um, and you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, I don't really monitor that at well. But if, you know, if it's, a, if it's especially somebody that sends me a note that they listen to me on the show and, you know, they'd like to connect, uh, I'm probably very happy to connect with them because that means we have something in common. Our guests share lots of insights and ideas. Are you going to tweak anything in your next retrospective based on what you've heard today? Tell us on Twitter with hashtag thisisretrospectivefacilitation or leave us a comment on thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com. I've opened up a Slack channel, so if you're locked in and want to bounce ideas off other facilitators about retrospective designs or just want to share some stories, you can head to thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com slash slack. Everyone is welcome. You can find all the links and how to contact Paul in the show notes at thisisretrospectivefacilitation.com slash e slash 22. Thank you for listening. This is Enrico Teotti. Till next time.